0: Does so six to eight want to head out for Bible study now? Yeah, all right. So, so, six to eight are going to head out now with Oliver and the team. And uh, thanks, Kerry.
1: Morning, everyone. As John has said, there are three readings today. The first are from the Old Testament, from the book of 1 Samuel, which we've been looking at. And the last is all very close to the end of the New Testament. Uh, so. Let's start 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 6 to 12. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slayed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he held it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. The second reading from the book of 1 Samuel is chapter 24. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David came out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. And now we move all the way to 1 Peter, towards the end of the Bible. We're heading to chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority. leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thank you, Kerry. Uh, Please turn back in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 24. Um, The the passage down to preach today is uh, eight chapters of 1 Samuel. Um, I'm not going to preach on all eight chapters, you'll be pleased to know. But um, I I do uh, suggest that you or recommend that you you have a read through, if you haven't already, uh, chapter 18 through to 25 um, to to get the flow of the story. Um, Let's pray again as we come to reflect on this part of God's word. Father God, we we do thank you for your word and we ask that you would uh, help us now as we uh, reflect upon it. We ask that you would teach us more of you and how you call us to live, that we may trust you and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Why? Why? It's an age-old question that is uh, often asked, and not just by three-year-olds when they're trying to annoy their parents. Why? It's a question that's asked by many in the face of the brokenness and suffering that we we face in this world. I mean, the past two years have shown us with COVID and the flow and effects of it, um, natural disasters, flood, earthquake, storm, fire, it all can lead us to ask why? It's a question that uh, we might ask as Christians, if if God's ultimate purpose for his creation is the new heavens, the new earth, a place where there'll be no more mourning or crying or death or or pain, why is the journey to that kingdom so long and so difficult? In the face of the brokenness of this world, I, I find myself often saying, come Lord Jesus, come and clean up the mess. Why is the journey to your kingdom so long and difficult? It's a similar question that could be asked of of Jesus. In fact, it, it kind of was asked of Jesus early in his ministry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, and then he presented before him ways to come into his kingdom quickly and without pain. If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you are the Son of God, use your authority to command the angels. If you are the Son of God, just bow down and worship me. It's easy and quick. But Jesus rejected temptation and set out on the long and difficult journey all the way to Jerusalem, all the way to the cross. But even now, all his enemies, well, they're not yet under his feet. The sting of death, that is sin, has been dealt with. But death itself has not yet been finally removed. Why? Why is it so long and difficult? Now, I hope I haven't depressed you. Um, You probably haven't come to church this morning to be uh, reminded of all the difficulties in the world and maybe you're here for a bit of a pick-me-up. I don't mean to be negative, but I do want to give us some instruction from God's Word that will actually help us. Because as we ask this question of why, why so long and difficult, An important insight comes to us from this passage this morning in 1 Samuel 24 because it's a question that David may well have asked in the troubled days recorded for us throughout 1 Samuel as he waits for the coming kingdom. Why? Why is David's journey to the throne of Israel so long and difficult? Just to recap, we've seen in recent weeks that Saul, the king that was chosen for the people, he had failed to trust and obey God, and so God had rejected him as king and chosen David to be his chosen king over Israel. Last week, we read of the Lord's defeat of Goliath and the Philistines through David. And then from that point on, from chapter 18, pretty much through to the end of the book, we read of Saul's jealousy. Against David. Saul is still king, but he sees David as a threat and he wants to stop him. Now, we're going to pick up in chapter 24, but just to kind of fill in the, the background and give a bit of a summary uh, from chapter 18, Saul tries to pin David to a wall with his spear twice. Then he becomes a little bit more subtle and he, he sends David to the front line of battle, hoping that he'll get killed in battle, but he's not. Then Saul challenges David to kill 100 Philistines and give their foreskins as the bride price for Saul's daughter. I guess Saul thinks, well, he may be able to kill one Philistine, but he can't kill 100. But no, David, um, David triumphs. In fact, he kills 200 Philistines and gives their foreskins to him as a bride price for his daughter. Saul's efforts to get rid of David fail once again. And so in chapter 19, Saul tries to pin him to the wall again. And then sends men to kill him in his bed, but he escapes. After all that, David starts to conclude that maybe Saul is not a safe person to be around. As his employer, I suspect there may well have been a workplace grievance uh, to resolve. And so David's on the run from that point on. He and 400 other dropouts from society gather around him. And Saul pursues them, trying to kill David because he's a threat to the throne. And this goes on for a long time. You can, as you read through the chapters, it's just it goes on and on. The last third of the book deals with this time. David's journey to the throne was long and difficult. And that question could be asked, why? Why? God had already rejected Saul as king. He'd already chosen David as king. He'd already brought about a great victory through David against the Philistines. Why the holdup? How come David is constantly on the run, hiding in caves, hiding in deserts? It's not because God's not in control. Uh, In chapter 24, we we read of this incident where Saul and his men are pursuing David and his men, and uh, they're both on opposite sides of the mountain, and Saul is closing in on David, about to capture him, and then, coincidentally, word comes to Saul that the Philistines are attacking somewhere else, and so... Saul leaves to pursue the Philistines. If God can do that, if he can orchestrate things like that, well, he can put an end to Saul. So it's not that God is not in control. So why so long and difficult? Well, let's have a look at chapter 24. It has some important things to teach us. Verse 1, we read, After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the, in, is in the desert of En-Gedi, or as Don suggested, we should say en Get Jedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there and Saul went in to relieve himself. It's a bit of an embarrassing detail to include. Um, I love the turn of phrase in the original Hebrew. It it says literally, uh, Saul went in to, to cover his feet lovely idiom, isn't it? Um, it's an embarrassing but, but necessary detail because of what we read next. That is, David and his men were far back in the cave. What a godsend. Here is Saul who has been so ruthlessly pursuing David. He's left the army outside. He's gone alone into this cave. And it just so happens that this is the cave that David and his men are hiding in the back of. Here is David's chance. Surely this is a godsend. That's what the men say. Verse 4, the men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Now, this is interesting. The men are quoting what God has supposedly said. It's interesting. Did it, it's, now, it's possible that, that the Lord did say something like this to David that's not recorded for us. But I think it's more likely that it's talking about what the Lord said to David back in chapter 23, verse 4, which will be on the screen. Once again, David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, Go down to Keilah, for I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. The men say The Lord said, I'll give your enemies into your hands. Perhaps in their minds, Philistines, Saul, there wasn't much difference. They're both a significant threat. If that's the case, then... If this is what they're referring to, the Lord hadn't actually promised David that he would deliver Saul over to him. And yet, for the men, it just seems too good to be true. He says, Come on, David, here's your chance. Here's your enemy. Here's the man who's been hunting you down relu- uh, relentlessly. He's ruined your life, driven you to a point where you're hiding in the back of a cave with a bunch of riffraff fearing for your life. And here he stands alone. All Squats alone, perhaps. No, too much detail. Think about everything he's done to you, David. Take charge. Here's your chance to take the leadership. After all, God said you'll be king. Now you can be. And look, it's obviously the hand of God. What are the chances of him choosing this cave of all caves? And remember, God said, I'll give your enemy into your hand. Come on, David. You can feel the temptation. It must have been strong for David. Here's your chance, Saul deserves it, God said. So we read, David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. This is is bold, this is skillful, cuts off a corner of the robe. He could have done a lot more, like put his sword through him. And I'm sure the men watching would have wondered why on earth he didn't. But then we read, Verse 5, afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. Why? Why is he conscience stricken for trimming his robe? This response might seem a little bit over the top. But earlier in 1 Samuel, we read of another robe that was torn. When Samuel, when Samuel turned, uh, delivered the news to, to Saul that he would no longer be king and he turned to go, uh, Saul reached out and grabbed Samuel's robe and it tore. And Samuel said in 15 verse 28, Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbours, to one better than you. You see that the robe there was symbolic of the kingship. So I think what's going on here in cutting off the corner of Saul's robe, David was symbolically taking the kingship for himself, which is why he's conscience stricken. As he continues verse 6, he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. David realized that the kingship had been given to Saul, and it was not for David to take by his power. It was up to God to take the kingship from Saul in his time, in his way. David realised and understood this and he regretted his symbolic action of cutting off and and taking his robe and he sets his men straight. Verse 7, with these words, David sharply rebuked his men, did not allow them to attack Saul. Literally, it says he ripped them apart with his words. They were failing to understand that this was not just an ordinary battle between two men, two men vying for the kingship. The kingship had been given to Saul. It was not for David to take by his own power. And so Saul left the cave and went his way. Now, what happens next is incredibly risky or some might even say stupid. Verse 8, David went, he heads out of the cave, went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my lord, the king. David addresses him as he treats him as, as king. Saul looks back and David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. You can picture the scene. when I mean, David's at the entrance to the cave. Saul's some way, some way off, heading back towards the army. David's men still hiding back in the cave. David opens his mouth, reveals his presence. This is going to be the speech of his life. His life depends on it. He says, verse 9, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. I mean, The fact that David is there, at the cave. That's, that's evidence enough that he has just spared Saul's life. But then David produces the corner of Saul's robe. He says, verse 11 See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. The piece of cloth was, as I said before, symbolic of the kingdom. But here it's also symbolic of David's innocence. He could have killed Saul, it's evidence of that, but he didn't. He continues, I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. David leaves vengeance to the Lord. He's not going to take matters into his own hands. He he will leave it to the Lord. And as he finishes his speech, verse 15... May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. David's trust is squarely in the Lord. And that continues that way. And what does Saul do at that point? I mean, does he call the army up to, to attack and kill David, the one he's been pursuing? David's life is kind of hanging in the balance here. Saul says, verse 16, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. Saul is overcome. Is it the shock of discovering how close to death he was? Is it that his conscience is now accusing him of how he has mistreated David? Perhaps he's finally realized that he's not going to be able to stop David becoming king, whatever he does. Maybe it's a mixture of all of those things. Saul wept aloud. But then pulling himself together, he says, verse 17, look there with me, verse 17. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you have treated me today. And then here comes the admission at long last. I know that you will surely be king. And that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. The kingdom will come into David's hand. Saul finally recognizes it, and then he asks David verse 21, "Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my family from my father's family, my name from my father's family." And David gives his oath to Saul. So what do we to learn from all this? Well, we see in this, in this episode an answer to the question of why David's kingdom was not established quickly and painlessly. I mean, quick and painless is kind of the way we, we like most things. Um, that was the way David's men in the cave thought things should go. I mean, here's your chance. He's your enemy, God said. But David understood an important insight, and that is that God's kingdom is God's kingdom. Sounds kind of obvious, but it's important. God's kingdom is God's kingdom. It's it's not to be taken by human power. God is the one who will overthrow evil and will justly punish wickedness. That's God's business, not ours. It will happen in God's time and in God's ways, not ours. Why was God doing things this way? Was he perhaps teaching David important lessons? Was he sharpening his faith? Was he bringing further judgment on Saul? We don't know because God's kingdom is God's kingdom. What about us today? Why has God allowed or caused things to happen as he has? Why doesn't he bring in his kingdom and spare us the mess of this world? Why is the journey to God's kingdom so long and difficult? Is he teaching people? Is he judging people? Is he saving people? Yes. Although we don't know which of those and and when, because God's kingdom is God's kingdom. It will happen in his time, in his way, not ours. And so David's godly patience and restraint in the face of suffering, that, that should remind us. It should remind us of someone else. As Peter writes in that passage Kerry read for us in 1 Peter 2, He, that is the Lord Jesus, committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus endured the long and painful way into his kingdom by death on the cross. Like David, he didn't take the kingdom violently, taking it by himself by the power of grasping. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus understood that God's kingdom is God's kingdom. And if we are to follow Jesus as our king, then we're, we're called to similar godly patience and restraint. Uh, Peter says in the the verse just before this, in 1 Peter 2.21, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And so if Jesus is our king, then then we must follow him in godly patience and restraint. What does that look like for us? It may be that we need patience and restraint in the face of, of opposition from people. People may insult you, they may threaten you, as they did Jesus. It, it may be because you're Christians, it may be for some other reason. What do you do when someone wrongs you? What do you do when you have the chance to, to get even? You Take matters into your own hands. I can sort this out. Romans chapter 12, verse 17 says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So we mustn't, we mustn't try to shortcut God's plans. We mustn't take judgment into our own hands. Don't take revenge. Trust God and his timing. We must have patience and restraint in the face of opposition. Now, does that mean that we just let people get away with things? No. If someone breaks the law, they should be brought to justice. They should face the consequences of their action. If someone wrongs us, it's it's right that they be confronted by that, that they be called to repentance. But we're not to take revenge. We're not to take matters into our own hands. We're to trust that God is God and he will judge justly. We must have patience and restraint in the face of opposition. Likewise, we need to have patience and restraint in the face of temptation. Uh, temptation can, to, to take a shortcut, temptation to, to take matters into our own hands. Uh, we live in a world, where, where the, a world that, that wants everything to be quick and painless. And being a Christian in this world can be tough. Our faith in God can be and is tested. I can see that in lots of lots of ways, but just to pick one example of an area that that we see that it, 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 one of the areas is how we behave sexually. And God says sex is a good gift to be enjoyed by a husband and a wife inside marriage. And as crazy as that sounds to our world, that is what God teaches us in the Bible. That is what is good, and that means that we should we should keep sex for marriage, and for marriage alone. Uh, which means for For those who are not married, who may one day want to be married, it means wait, patience, restraint. Save sex for your future spouse, should it be God's will that you marry, and for your future spouse alone. Wait, trust God and his timing. For those of us who are married, this means being faithful to your spouse. Save sex for your spouse and for your spouse alone. Be faithful. Married or not married, trust that God is good that his plan is good. It may involve waiting. It may involve difficulties, but trust him. Now the world around us will say, don't be stupid. If fulfillment and pleasure is right there in front of you, take it. It's yours. Take matters into your own hands. Those men in the cave gave David bad advice. They didn't see the bigger picture. Likewise, temptation may say to us, look, God has brought this person into your life. Sure, you're not married to them, but you love each other. God wants you to be happy, right? That's that's his will for you. Here's the solution. This will put an end to your problems. You deserve it. Take matters into your own hands. No. The Lord forbid that we should do such a thing. We must follow the example of Jesus. We must trust God and his timing, even if that means patience and restraint. David showed extraordinary godly patience and restraint in the cave on that day. He trusted God. He didn't take matters into his own hands. Now, if we're honest, our trust in God is not like David's. Our trust in God wavers and at times fails, as David's himself did. We do take matters into our own hands instead of trusting God. Friends, the good news, praise God, we have a king even better than David. We have a perfect king. We have one who has gone before us, King Jesus, who is our example to follow. But even more than that, he's the one who's our saviour, who picks us up when we fall down. As the next verse in that passage from 1 Peter 2 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Praise God. We, we have a faithful king who has entrusted himself to him who judges justly, who has borne our sins for us. Praise God for Jesus, our faithful king and saviour, And let's die to sins and live for righteousness, trusting God, trusting in his good promises, knowing that God's kingdom is God's kingdom, and so we can trust him. Will you pray with me? Our Lord God and loving, gracious, heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you are God, that your kingdom is your kingdom, and you are bringing it about in your perfect way, in your perfect time. Father, we thank you for our Lord, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Please help us to trust him, to to follow him, to patiently endure opposition, to patiently resist temptation. Father, forgive us for when we have failed. Strengthen us to endure, to to die to sins and to live for righteousness. And Father, we thank you that in Jesus we, we can be healed from our sins. We thank you and we praise you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.